This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. Great deeds, something abides. On great fields, something stays. Forms change and pass. Bodies disappear, but spirits linger to consecrate ground for the vision place of souls. Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. As we embark on a journey to explore the haunted history of the Battle of Gettysburg, let us first ask ourselves... What lingering spirits might remain from a war fought over the issue of slavery and racism, and what stories do they have to tell? How did the horrific events of the Civil War impact the people of this nation, and how does that legacy continue to influence our society today? And finally, what connection does the paranormal world have to this pivotal moment in American history? The topic of race and slavery is undoubtedly one of the most sensitive and contentious subjects in American history. For centuries, the issue of slavery has been at the forefront of political, social, and economic discourse in the United States, shaping the nation's trajectory and influencing the lives of millions of people. The scars of this painful history continue to linger on, affecting the country's cultural heritage, social dynamics, and political landscape. When Walls Can Talk recognizes the significance of these issues, acknowledging the gravity of the discussion in this episode. We aim to educate people on the history of slavery and its impact on American society, but we do not condone or promote any of the beliefs or actions expressed in this episode. Our goal is to provide a platform for open and honest dialogue where we can explore the complex history of slavery in a respectful and sensitive manner. It is important to understand that the legacy of slavery and racial discrimination is a reality that still affects many individuals and communities in the United States. The trauma and pain that resulted from slavery, segregation, and systematic racism cannot be erased or ignored. As such, it is crucial to approach these discussions with sensitivity, empathy, and an open mind. We recognize that some of the views and practices discussed in this episode may be offensive or uncomfortable, but it is through honest dialogue and education that we can confront and address the historical and ongoing effects of slavery and racism. In the end, the history of slavery and race relations in the United States is a complex and multifaceted issue that demands our attention and reflection. We hope that this episode can serve as a starting point for an ongoing dialogue on the issues of race, slavery, and their impact on American society. By facing these issues head-on, we can work towards creating a more just and equitable society, one that recognizes and values the diverse experiences and contributions of all of its citizens. It is also important to note that this episode contains graphic details from one of the bloodiest events to ever occur on American soil. This content may be disturbing to some listeners, and discretion is advised. 
We want to emphasize that our aim is to educate and inform, not to condone or glorify any of the beliefs or actions expressed in this episode. And as such, this episode is intended for mature audiences who are ready and willing to engage with this complex and difficult history. As I press record today, a sense of reverence and wonder fills my soul. This episode's topic has held a special place in my heart for years. The ghosts of Gettysburg. The very grounds that ignited my passion for the paranormal many years ago. My first visit to Gettysburg is forever etched in my mind. Galloping on horseback across the vast battlefields, I couldn't help but envision the battles that raged there long ago. Hear the distant booms and pops of cannon and musket fire. Feel the determination that drove so many into the jaws of hell. The term hallowed ground quickly became more than just a phrase to me. I stood in a place where the veil between the worlds was thin, and the past and present were one, perpetually existing in a timeless loop. But it was at dawn while camping in the woods of Gettysburg in the late fall when I witnessed something rather extraordinary. I can't truly pin it to one specific memory or event, but rather a culmination of energy and subconscious awareness that penetrated my perception of the present moment. It was early in the morning, the fingers of sunlight just starting to peek over the bare limbs of the trees on the horizon. As I blinked away the grogginess of sleep, I took in the sacred and profound silence that surrounded me. Emerging from my tent, I saw the shattered crystals of frost clinging desperately to the fabric, soon to be non-existent when the sun's warmth would reach them. I remember a sense of wonder and awe at the history that lay just beyond the trees. As I took a deep breath of the fresh morning air, I remember the charge of excitement that filled me. I knew that there were stories to be told, secrets to be uncovered and experiences to be had. I felt a connection to the ghosts of the past and the spirits that still lingered in the present, and as I prepared to explore the haunted sites of Gettysburg, I knew I was about to embark on a journey like no other. Little did I know how long that moment would remain with me. The early morning mist that swirled around me was alive, as if a ghostly presence lingered. As the first rays of sunlight finally illuminated the trees, the mist dissipated, revealing unexplainable sights that still haunt my memories. Shadows moving across the open landscapes, whispers of the past resonating within my own mind, and faces manifesting themselves upon my subconscious. The land spoke to me, begging me to tell its stories, and that's precisely what I want to do in this episode. As we contemplate the legacy of the Battle of Gettysburg and the ghosts that are left behind, it's impossible to ignore the youthfulness of the soldiers who fought and died on these hollowed fields. Many of them were mere teenagers or in their early twenties, thrust into a conflict they could barely comprehend. A brutal and unforgiving war with little training or experience and forced to fight for causes they may not have fully understood or supported. They left behind the safety of their hometowns to face unimaginable violence and bloodshed. Their sacrifice is a sobering reminder of the high price of war and the toll it takes on the families and communities left behind. 
In this episode, I'll be taking you on a journey through the haunted locations and paranormal events that make Gettysburg one of the most fascinating and chilling places in the world. But more than that, I want to share with you the personal connection I feel to this place and the charge I've always felt from the universe to tell its story. Prepare yourself for an intense journey as we delve into the world of the supernatural. Dim the lights, let yourself get comfortable, and brace yourself for the chilling tales of the restless spirits that still haunt the hallowed grounds of Gettysburg. Welcome to A Sheet of Flame in Blinding Smoke, Echoes from Gettysburg. Throughout the ages, man has repeated the same earnest saying, more of a question really, or perhaps even a plea, if these walls could talk. But what if they do, and always have? Perhaps their stories, memories, and messages are all around us, if only we would take the moment to listen. On this podcast, we reinvestigate legends and tales of the past and allow the echoes of their lessons to live on once again, informing us, educating us, and sharing new and unique insight into the inner workings of the paranormal and spiritual world. Will you dare to listen? This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. The United States prior to the Civil War was a rapidly growing and dynamic country. The economy was expanding, fueled by the growth of manufacturing and industry in the North and the production of cotton and other cash crops in the South. The country was deeply divided over the issue of slavery. While slavery had been legal in the South for centuries, it had been abolished in the North in the early 19th century. This led to a growing divide between the two regions, with the South insisting on its right to maintain the institution of slavery, and the North advocating for its abolition. The United States presidential election of 1860 was a highly contentious one that ultimately led to the succession of several southern states and the start of the Civil War. The election was held on November 6, 1960, and featured four main candidates. Abraham Lincoln of the newly formed Republican Party, John C. Breckinridge of the South Democratic Party, John Bell of the Constitutional Union Party, and Stephen A. Douglas of the Northern Democratic Party. The election was marked by intense regional divisions and debates over the issue of slavery. The southern states, which relied heavily on slavery for their economy, were deeply opposed to Lincoln's candidacy because they feared that his election would lead to the abolition. Lincoln, on the other hand, ran on a platform of preventing the spread of slavery into new territories, but not necessarily abolishing it where it already existed. The Constitutional Union Party, made up of former Whigs and know-nothings, sought to avoid the issue of slavery altogether and instead focused on preserving the Union. Their candidate, John Bell, was popular in the border states, which were also deeply divided over the issue. The election results were a clear indication of the regional divisions within the country. 
Lincoln won the presidency with only 39.8% of the popular vote, but he won a majority of the electoral votes. He did not receive a single vote from the southern states, and his name did not even appear on the ballot in some of them. Breckinridge won most of the southern states, while Bell won three border states, and Douglas won only Missouri and New Jersey. Following Lincoln's victory, several southern states began to secede from the Union, starting with South Carolina in December of 1860. By the time Lincoln was inaugurated in March 1861, seven southern states had seceded and formed the Confederate States of America. The contentious election of 1960, therefore, set the stage for the start of the Civil War and the deadliest conflict in American history. The secession of the southern states was a major blow to the country, and it plunged the nation into crisis. Despite efforts to resolve the conflict peacefully, tensions continued to rise, ultimately leading to the outbreak of the Civil War. Prior to the war, the United States was a country in transition, struggling to reconcile its regional differences and competing visions for its future. While it was a time of great economic and political growth, it was also a time of great upheaval and uncertainty, as the nation grappled with the profound moral and political questions posed by the institution of slavery. The Civil War in the United States was a conflict that began on April 12, 1861, at Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. The war was fought between the United States and the established Confederate States of America. The immediate cause of the war was the refusal of the U.S. government to recognize the southern states' right to secede from the Union, while the Confederate government asserted that right by seizing federal property within the state's borders. This led to President Abraham Lincoln's call for volunteers to suppress the insurrection, which prompted four upper southern states to join the Confederacy and widen the war. Although the constitutional principle and secession were the proximate cause of the conflict, they were not the ultimate cause of the war. The ultimate cause of the war was the defense of slavery, which dominated the thinking and rhetoric of the southern statesmen in 1860 and 1861. Deep South states sent commissioners to the upper South states to persuade them to leave the Union too. Their arguments emphasized the mortal danger that the recent election of Republican Abraham Lincoln as president posed to slavery and to white people in the South. The formal explanations that several states used to justify secession similarly emphasized slavery. Even Virginia, which seceded after the war actually began, had formulated a list of demands that the U.S. government must meet if Virginia were to remain in the Union, all of them related to slavery and race. The defense of states' rights, southern honor, fear of federal coercion, and a growing belief that the North and South were divergent civilizations all factored into the decision-making of the southern statesmen in 1860 and 61. But it was the defense of the very real institution of slavery and the economy, society, culture, and civilization built upon it that was the indispensable factor that led to war. Slavery was not only an economic institution, but also a social and cultural institution in the South. Slaves were considered property, and the ownership of slaves was a sign of wealth and status. The white population in the South believed they needed slavery to maintain their way of life and their economy. Slaves were used as laborers on plantations, and their labor was essential to the production of cotton, which was the primary export of the South. All this came to a head on April 12, 1861, when Confederate forces opened fire on Fort Sumter, a Union-held fort located in the middle of the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. 
The fort's status had been contentious for months, and outgoing President Buchanan had failed to reinforce the Union garrison under Major Robert Anderson. But Anderson refused to sit idly by, and under the cover of darkness on December 26, 1860, he sailed to the garrison from the poorly placed Fort Muletree to the Stalwart Island Fort Sumter. Anderson's actions made him an instant hero in the North. An attempt to resupply the fort on January 9, 1861 failed, but an informal truce had held. President Lincoln, who had just been sworn in, faced a challenging situation with Fort Sumter. His Secretary of State, Seward, had been engaged in back-channel dealings with the Confederates, which undermined Lincoln's decision-making. Seward wanted to pull out of the fort, but Lincoln knew that holding it was the only workable option. With a firm hand, Lincoln tamed Seward, and he ultimately decided that resupplying and holding the fort was the way to go. So, on April 6th, Lincoln informed the governor of South Carolina that a ship with food but no ammunition would try to supply the fort. It was a bold move, and historians described it as, quote, the first sign of the mastery that would mark Lincoln's presidency. The Union would win if it could resupply and hold on to the fort, and the South would be considered the aggressor if it opened fire on an unarmed ship supplying starving men. On April 9th, 1861, Confederate President Davis ordered General P.G.T. Beauregard to take the fort before supplies could reach it. At 4.30 a.m. on April 12th, Confederate forces fired the first of 4,000 shells at the fort, which fell the next day. The loss of Fort Sumter lit a patriotic fire under the North, and on April 15th, Lincoln called on the states to field 75,000 volunteer troops for 90 days. Passionate Union states met these quotas quickly, and on May 3, 1861, Lincoln called for an additional 42,000 volunteers for three years. Shortly after this, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, and North Carolina seceded and joined the Confederacy, leaving the Union reeling. In a move to reward Virginia, the Confederate capital was moved to Richmond. The Civil War had officially begun, and it would be a long and bloody road to its eventual resolution. But the events at Fort Sumter had set the stage for what was to come, and the fate of the nation was now in the hands of its people. In the aftermath of the fall of Fort Sumter and the ensuing call for troops, President Lincoln and his administration faced a new challenge. How to maintain control over the growing unrest in the border states and other regions of the country sympathetic to the Confederacy. One of the main tools at their disposal was the writ of habeas corpus, a legal mechanism that allowed individuals to challenge their detention or imprisonment. However, this power was not unlimited, and in the midst of a civil war, the question of when and how to suspend habeas corpus became a contentious issue. Lincoln himself struggled with the decision, recognizing the potential for abuse and also the necessity of taking swift action to protect the Union. Ultimately, Lincoln did suspend the writ of habeas corpus, initially in Maryland and later on in other parts of the country, leading to thousands of arrests and detentions without trial. This move was met with both support and criticism, with some arguing that it was necessary to maintain order and prevent sabotage by Confederate sympathizers, while others decried it as an unconstitutional violation of civil liberties. 
The legacy of the suspension of habeas corpus during the Civil War is a complicated one, with ongoing debates about the balance between national security and individual rights in times of crisis. However, it is clear that the events at Fort Sumter and the subsequent call to arms had far-reaching implications for the country, both legally and politically, and set the stage for the bloody conflict that would come to define the nation's history for years to come. In the aftermath of the Battle of Fort Sumter, both the Union and Confederacy began to mobilize their forces for what would become one of the bloodiest conflicts in American history. In the summer of 1861, Union forces under the command of General Irvin McDowell marched out of Washington, D.C. towards Confederate forces led by General P.G.T. Beauregard. This would be one of the first major battles of the Civil War, and it would take place at Bull Run, Virginia on July 21, 1861. The Union forces were confident in their ability to quickly defeat the Confederates and bring an end to this war. However, the Confederates had the advantage of being on their home turf, and they were better equipped and trained than the Union forces. The battle began with an early morning artillery barrage, followed by a charge of Union troops. The Confederate forces held their ground and repulsed the attack, causing the Union troops to retreat in disarray. The Battle of Bull Run was a humiliating defeat for the Union, and it shattered their confidence in their ability to win the war quickly. It also gave the Confederates hope that they could win the war and preserve their way of life. The victory at Bull Run also led to the promotion of Confederate General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson, who would become one of the most famous commanders of the Civil War. In the months following the Battle of Bull Run, both sides continued to mobilize their forces and prepare for the next major battle. In the West, Union forces, under the command of General Ulysses S. Grant, began to move against Confederate forces led by General Albert Sidney Johnston. The two sides clashed at the Battle of Shiloh on April 6th and 7th, 1862. The battle was one of the bloodiest of the war, with over 23,000 casualties. The Union forces were initially caught off guard by the Confederate attack, but they were able to rally and hold their ground. The arrival of reinforcements under General Don Carlos Buell helped to turn the tide of the battle in favor for the Union. The Confederates were eventually forced to retreat, and the Union claimed a hard-fought victory. The Battle of Shiloh was a turning point in the Civil War, as it showed that the Confederacy would not be able to win the war through a quick series of victories. It also helped to solidify the reputation of General Grant, who would go on to become one of the most successful Union commanders of the war. In the East, Union forces under General George B. McClellan were preparing to launch an attack on Confederate forces led by General Robert E. Lee. McClellan had spent months preparing his army and had built up a significant advantage in terms of men and equipment. However, Lee was a skilled commander who was able to outmaneuver McClellan and force him into a series of costly battles known as the Seven Days Battles. The Seven Days Battles took place between June 25th and July 1st, 1862. The battles were characterized by fierce fighting and heavy casualties on both sides. Ultimately, Lee was able to force McClellan to retreat, and the Union suffered a significant defeat. The Seven Days Battles were a major setback for the Union, and they highlighted the importance of having skilled and adaptable commanders in the field. It also showed that the Confederacy would not be defeated easily and that the war would continue to be a long and bloody struggle. 
After the Union victories at Forts Henry and Donelson in early 1862, General George B. McClellan took command of the Army of the Potomac, the Union's main eastern army. McClellan was a skilled organizer and trainer, but his cautious approach to combat frustrated President Lincoln and other Union leaders. McClellan spent months planning an invasion of Virginia, but when he finally began to move his troops in the spring of 1862, he was slow to engage the enemy. On September 17, 1862, McClellan finally faced Confederate General Robert E. Lee's army at Antietam Creek in Maryland. The Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest single day of the war, with more than 23,000 casualties. Although it was a tactical draw, it gave Lincoln the opportunity to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared that all slaves in rebel territory would be forever free. In December of 1862, Union forces attempted to take the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, by attacking Fredericksburg. General Ambrose Burnside led his troops across the Rappahannock River to assault the Confederate defenses. However, the Confederate forces were well-prepared and well-positioned, and Burnside's forces suffered heavy casualties. The Battle of Fredericksburg was a Confederate victory and a major setback for the Union. In May of 1863, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson was mortally wounded by friendly fire during the Battle of Chancellorsville. The battle was a major victory for Lee and his army, but the loss of Jackson was a blow to the Confederate morale. Despite the victory at Chancellorsville, Lee decided to invade the North once again. He hoped to win a major victory on Union soil that would force the North to negotiate a peace settlement. Lee's army advanced into Pennsylvania, and on July 1st, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg began. The Battle of Gettysburg, which took place from July 1st to July 3rd in 1863, is considered one of the most significant events in American history. It was the largest and deadliest battle of the American Civil War, with an estimated 51,000 casualties, including both Union and Confederate soldiers. The battle was fought in the small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and marked a turning point in the war, with the Union Army successfully repelling the Confederate Army's attempt to invade the North. In the year 1863, the town of Gettysburg was a quaint and peaceful place, nestled among the rolling hills and fields of southern Pennsylvania. The town itself was small, with a population of only a few thousand people. The streets were lined with sturdy brick buildings, some of which had been standing for over a century. The town center was dominated by the imposing presence of the courthouse, a grand and stately structure that stood at the intersection of two major roads. On either side of the courthouse, the streets were lined with small shops and businesses where locals and travelers alike could purchase goods and provisions. Beyond the town limits, the fields stretched out in all directions, a patchwork of green and gold as far as the eye could see. The gentle slopes were dotted with farmhouses and barns, and herds of cattle and sheep grazed contentedly in the meadows. In the distance, the blue-green ridges of the Appalachian Mountains rose up, providing a majestic backdrop to the peaceful scene below. It was a place of beauty and tranquility, a place where the only sounds were the gentle rustle of the wind and the chirping of birds in the trees. The Civil War had been raging for over two years before the Battle of Gettysburg took place. 
the Confederate Army led by General Robert E. Lee had been enjoying a series of victories and was looking to secure another major victory on northern soil, which they believed would help them negotiate a peace treaty with the Union. On the other side, the Union Army, led by General George G. Meade, was determined to protect their territory and end the war once and for all. Day One On July 1st, 1863, the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union Cavalry Division under General George Buford laid out their defenses on the three ridges west of Gettysburg in anticipation of the Confederate Army's arrival. Buford's plan was to delay the Confederate advance while awaiting the arrival of Union infantry who could occupy defensive positions south of the town. By 10.20 a.m., the Confederates had pushed the Union cavalrymen back to McPherson's Ridge, and the vanguard of the Union I Corps under Major General John F. Reynolds finally arrived. Heavy fighting ensued, with the Confederate brigades of James J. Archer and Joseph R. Davis assaulting through Herbst Woods and gaining a temporary success against Brigadier General Lysander Cutler's brigade. The Union Iron Brigade under Brigadier General Solomon Meredith enjoyed initial success against Archer, but was eventually pushed out of the woods toward Seminary Ridge. The Confederate division of Major General William Dorsey Pender was added to the assault, and the Union I Corps was driven back through the Lutheran Cemetery and Gettysburg streets. Meanwhile, Two divisions of Confederate General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps turned south on the Carlisle and Harrisburg roads towards Gettysburg, while the Union 11 Corps raced north on the Baltimore Pike and Tannytown Road. The Union line ran in a semicircle west, north, and northeast of Gettysburg, but the Union did not have enough troops to cover all the gaps. Cutler's brigade had its right flank in the air, and the leftmost division of the 11 Corps was unable to deploy in time to strengthen the line. General Abner Doubleday was forced to throw in reserve brigades to salvage his line. Around 2 p.m., the Confederate 2nd Corps Division of Major General Robert E. Rhodes and Eubel Early assaulted and outflanked the Union 1 and 11 Corps positions north and northwest of town. The Confederate brigades of Colonel Edward A. O'Neill and Brigadier General Alfred Iverson suffered severe losses assaulting the One Corps Division of Brigadier General John C. Robinson south of Oak Hill. All in all, as Union positions collapsed both north and west of town, Major General Oliver O. Howard ordered a retreat to the high ground south of town at Cemetery Hill. The Union soldiers were pursued by Confederate troops but were able to establish their defensive line on Cemetery Hill. The first day of the Battle of Gettysburg ended with the Confederates in possession of Gettysburg and the Union Army positioned on the high ground south of town. Day 2 On July 2, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, both the Union and Confederate armies prepared for what would become one of the most intense and decisive days of the entire Civil War. As the sun rose over the hills of Gettysburg, soldiers on both sides knew that the fate of the nation rested on their actions that day. The Confederate Army, under the command of General Robert E. Lee, began the day with a plan to attack the Union Army's left flank. 
Lee hoped to cut off the Union Army's supply lines and force them to abandon their position on Cemetery Hill. Meanwhile, the Union Army, commanded by General George Meade, fortified their position and prepared for what they knew would be a fierce battle. The Confederate attack began in the late afternoon, with a massive assault by General James Longstreet's corps on the Union left flank. Longstreet's men attacked the Union position on a ridge known as Little Round Top, which provided a key defensive position for the Union Army. The battle raged on for hours, with both sides taking heavy casualties. This was among one of the most significant moments of the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. As the Confederate Army advanced up the hill, they were met with fierce resistance from Union troops, commanded by Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Chamberlain's men, who were dangerously low on ammunition, charged down the hill with bayonets fixed, surprising the Confederate soldiers and forcing them to retreat. Meanwhile, Confederate General Ubel Early's division launched a surprise attack on the Union Army's right flank, which was defended by General Daniel Sickles. Sickles had disobeyed orders to hold his position and instead moved his troops forward to a position known as the Peach Orchard, which left his flank vulnerable to attack. Early's assault was initially successful, and the Union Army was forced to push back. However, the Union Army was once again able to rally, and General Winfield Scott Hancock quickly moved troops to reinforce the position. The battle raged on, with both sides taking heavy losses. At one point, Confederate General Louis Armistead led his men in a desperate charge against the Union lines. Armistead was mortally wounded and his men were forced to retreat. As the sun began to set on July 2nd, the Confederate army had made significant gains, but they were unable to achieve a decisive victory. Lee decided to continue the attack the next day, hoping to break through the Union Army's defenses and finally win the battle. The second day of the Battle of Gettysburg was one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War. The Union Army suffered over 9,000 casualties, while the Confederate Army suffered over 6,800. Day 3 On the morning of July 3rd, 1863, the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union and Confederate armies prepared for what would be the final day of conflict. Confederate General Robert E. Lee hoped to break the Union line with a massive assault on the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge, while Union General George Meade prepared his defenses for what would become the most famous engagement of the battle, Pickett's Charge. The day began with a Confederate artillery bombardment of the Union positions, lasting two hours and causing significant damage to the Union line. Union artillery responded with counterfire, but the Confederate bombardment was so intense that it silenced much of the Union artillery. By the time the Confederate bombardment ended, the Union army had suffered significant casualties and many of their cannons were damaged or destroyed. Around 1 o'clock p.m., General Lee ordered General George Pickett to lead a massive assault on the Union Center on Cemetery Ridge. The attack would be supported by General James Longstreet's Corps, which would attack from the south, and General Richard Ewell's Corps, which would attack from the north. The plan was for Pickett's division to charge straight at the Union line, breaking it open and allowing the Confederate Army to pour through. 
Pickett's charge began with a mile-long line of Confederate soldiers marching across an open field, facing heavy fire from Union artillery and musket fire. The Union artillery had been relatively ineffective during the Confederate bombardment, but now they unleashed a devastating barrage on the charging Confederates. The Confederate soldiers were cut down by the hundreds, with some estimates suggesting that as many as 50% of the charging soldiers were killed or wounded before they even reached the Union line. Despite the overwhelming firepower of the Union Army, the Confederates managed to breach the Union line at a point called the Angle, near a clump of trees known as the Copse of Trees. However, the Union soldiers rallied and managed to push the Confederates back. Pickett's charge was a disaster for the Confederacy, and it marked the beginning of the end of the Battle of Gettysburg. The Union army held strong, and the Confederate army was forced to retreat back to Virginia. The battle had been a turning point in the Civil War, and it marked the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. In the aftermath of the battle, the Union army buried their dead and tended to their wounded while the Confederate army retreated back to Virginia. The town of Gettysburg was left in ruins, with many of its buildings destroyed or damaged by the fighting. The battle was a horrific event for the inhabitants of Gettysburg, who found themselves caught in the middle of a bloody conflict between the Union and Confederate armies. The town itself became a battlefield, with streets and homes littered with debris and the dead and wounded from both sides. Houses that once provided shelter and comfort were transformed into makeshift hospitals, with medical staff and soldiers working tirelessly to save as many lives as possible. As the battle raged on, the people of Gettysburg faced unimaginable horrors. The sounds of gunfire and explosions echoed through the town, and families huddled in basements and cellars to avoid the flying bullets and shrapnel. The stench of death permeated the air as bodies lay in the streets and in the yards of homes. Many residents were forced to flee their homes and seek shelter elsewhere as the fighting raged on for three long and grueling days. By the end of the battle, nearly every building in the town had been used as a hospital, including private homes, churches, and even barns. It is estimated that more than 8,000 wounded soldiers were treated in Gettysburg during and after the battle, and many of them died from their injuries. The town's residents were left to pick up the pieces and rebuild their lives in the aftermath of this devastating event, forever haunted by the memories of the battle that ravaged their once peaceful community. The battle had been a costly one for both sides, with over 50,000 casualties in total. The Union Army had suffered over 23,000 casualties, while the Confederate Army had suffered over 28,000. The Battle of Gettysburg was the bloodiest battle of the Civil War, and it marked the turning point in the conflict, as the Confederate Army was never able to launch another major offensive. The Union Army had won a significant victory, but the cost was immense. The battle had a profound impact on the course of the war and on American history as a whole. After the bloody and intense battle, the town was left with a daunting task, clearing and burying the dead. The horrific aftermath of the battle left the landscape scarred, with bodies littering the fields and streets of the town. The Union Army was tasked with the responsibility of burying the dead, and the process was an arduous and overwhelming one. 
The first step was to identify and sort the dead. Teams of soldiers known as burial parties scoured the battlefield, searching for any remaining survivors and separating the dead by affiliation. They used markers such as flags, pieces of clothing, and even rocks to indicate whether a body belonged to the Union or Confederate Army. Once the bodies were identified, the burial parties had to dig graves. The teams worked tirelessly, digging trenches that could hold anywhere from 20 to 100 bodies. They dug the trenches as close to the battlefield as possible, but as the number of dead grew, the graves extended further and further from the town. The burial process was not a simple one, as many of the bodies were mutilated and unrecognizable. The smell of decay permeated the air and the task of moving the bodies was physically and emotionally taxing for all involved. Bodies were often piled on top of each other, and the process of identification was complicated by the fact that many soldiers had lost their identification tags during the battle. The aftermath of the Battle of Gettysburg was a tragedy that affected everyone involved. The people of the town were left to pick up the pieces of their broken lives, while the soldiers who survived the battle were haunted by the memories of the carnage they had witnessed. Today, the battlefield of Gettysburg is preserved as a national park and a monument to the soldiers who fought and died there. It is a powerful reminder of the sacrifices made during the Civil War and the ongoing struggle for equality and justice in America. The ghosts of the soldiers who fought and died at Gettysburg are said to still haunt the area, making it a popular destination for paranormal enthusiasts and history buffs alike. After the battle ended, both the Union and Confederate armies were left reeling from the three-day battle that resulted in the lives of tens of thousands of casualties. The Union victory marked a turning point in the Civil War and helped to boost Union morale. In the aftermath, President Abraham Lincoln visited Gettysburg to dedicate the Soldiers' National Cemetery and deliver his famous Gettysburg Address. In his speech, Lincoln honored the sacrifices made by the Union soldiers and emphasized the importance of preserving the Union and the principles of democracy for which it stood. The story of how the Gettysburg Address came to be is a fascinating one. Lincoln had only a few days to prepare for the speech, and he knew it would be a momentous occasion. Lincoln saw the speech as an opportunity to rally the country and to remind the people of the cause for which so many soldiers had given their lives. Lincoln worked on the speech for several days, writing and revising it until he had a final draft. It was only 272 words long and took less than two minutes to deliver, but its impact would be felt for generations. It began with the famous words, four score and seven years ago, referring to the signing of the Declaration of Independence 87 years earlier. The speech went on to honor the soldiers who had died at Gettysburg and to remind the audience of the importance of the Union cause. The Gettysburg Address is a powerful reflection of the events of the Battles of Gettysburg. Lincoln spoke of the bravery and sacrifice of the soldiers who had fought and died in battle. He also spoke of the importance of the Union cause, saying that the soldiers had given their lives so that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. The speech was a call to action, urging the people to continue fighting for the Union cause. Lincoln knew that the war was far from over, and that there would be many more battles and many more casualties. 
but he believed that the cause was just, and that the sacrifice of the soldiers would not be in vain. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The Gettysburg Address has become one of the most famous speeches in American history and its impact is still felt today. It is a testament to the bravery and sacrifice of the soldiers who fought and died in the Civil War, and a reminder of the importance of the Union cause. The speech also serves as a reminder of the power of words to inspire and to move people to action. Despite the Union victory at Gettysburg, the war continued for nearly two more years. The Union Army continued to push south, engaging in a series of bloody battles against the Confederate Army. In November 1863, the Union Army won another crucial victory at the Battle of Chattanooga, which opened up a new front in the war and helped to cut off the Confederacy's supply lines. Over the next year, the Union Army continued to make gains, capturing key Confederate cities such as Atlanta and Savannah. Meanwhile, Confederate General Robert E. Lee attempted to launch a series of offensive against the Union forces, but he was ultimately unsuccessful. In April 1865, Lee surrendered his army to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, effectively ending the Civil War. In the aftermath of the war, the Union began the long process of rebuilding and reconciling with the former Confederate states. 
Reconstruction efforts were launched to rebuild the South and ensure that newly freed slaves were given the same rights and opportunities as white citizens. Despite these efforts, however, the aftermath of the Civil War was marked by ongoing tensions between the North and South, as well as ongoing struggles for civil rights for African Americans. The legacy of the Civil War would continue to be felt for generations as the United States worked to heal the wounds of the conflict and build a more perfect union. If you probably couldn't tell, I'm obsessed with creating podcasts. As I've grown as a creator, I needed a hosting and distribution platform that's capable of growing alongside me. So that's why I use Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has already helped over 100,000 people make, distribute, grow, and monetize their show. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting shouldn't be hard if you work with the right partners, and that's why I love Buzzsprout. Don't wait. Get your message out into the world today by using my affiliate link in the show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping people like you succeed and achieve all of your podcasting goals. Join the over 100,000 of us already using Buzzsprout to get our message out and watch your show take off. See you out there, creators. The Battle of Gettysburg is one of the most significant events in American history and has been studied and remembered by countless people over the years. But beyond the historical significance of the battle, the area of Gettysburg is also known for its ghostly and haunted energy. The battlefields, cemeteries, and historic buildings of Gettysburg have been the subject of numerous ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Many people believe that the restless spirits of the soldiers who fought and died at Gettysburg still linger in the area. Visitors to the battlefields have reported seeing ghostly apparitions, hearing the sounds of battle, and feeling cold spots and other paranormal activity. Some of the most well-known haunted locations in Gettysburg include Devil's Den, the Wheat Field, and the Jenny Wade House. The stories of the ghosts of Gettysburg are a powerful reminder of the human cost of the Civil War and the lasting impact that the conflict had on this nation. For many, these ghostly encounters serve as a connection to the past and a way to honor the sacrifices made by those who fought in the war. While the stories of the ghosts of Gettysburg may be eerie, they also offer a unique perspective on the history of the Civil War and the lasting impact of one of America's most pivotal moments. The Jenny Wade House As the only direct civilian casualty during the Battle of Gettysburg, the death of Mary Virginia Jenny Wade made a stark reminder for everyone who survived the war as to just how fortunate they were. The Jenny Wade House is largely considered to be among the most haunted buildings still standing in Gettysburg today, with much of its original construction still intact. It's now a popular museum that serves to draw tourists from all over by offering tours that provide accounts of the paranormal activity within. Amidst prolific ghostly occurrences like those found at the home of Jenny Wade, there often lies an undercurrent of lost love. 
and in the case of Jenny Wade, that is precisely what we discover. But before we delve into her story, let us journey back to the past and set the scene for one of Gettysburg's most haunted attractions. Jenny Wade's roots were deeply embedded in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where she resided with her mother, Mary, three brothers, and two sisters. Jenny's father, James, was a tailor by profession, but rarely made an appearance in their lives. He had frequent run-ins with the law, and his strange and unpredictable behavior led him to be committed to a mental institution. In an effort to make ends meet without the presence of Mr. Wade, Jenny and her mother took up the trade of seamstresses, creating custom clothes for the local community right from the comfort of their home. Additionally, they took care of a young, disabled boy named Isaac, who belonged to a local family in need of assistance. However, when the Battle of Gettysburg erupted on July 1st, 1863, Mary Wade felt that their home was no longer safe. With the war raging just outside, Mary decided to evacuate her family and Isaac to the home of the oldest Wade sibling, Georgia Anna. Jenny and her mother joined in caring for Georgia and her newborn baby, hoping that this move would provide greater safety for them all. As the afternoon rolled around, the battle resumed with even more intensity. The sounds of gunfire and cannon blasts shook the Wade home to its core. Jenny and her family were now right in the thick of the fighting. Despite the danger, Jenny bravely ventured out to help wounded Union soldiers, carrying food and water to them amidst the chaos of battle. She also tended to her older sister and her infant nephew. As the sun set, the gunfire finally died down, but the Wades were not out of danger yet. The Confederate army was now in control of their street. The family huddled together, hoping to stay safe and avoid detection. The night passed in fear and uncertainty, with the sounds of the wounded and dying ringing in their ears. The next morning brought little relief, as the artillery fire resumed with renewed vigor. Undeterred, Jenny and her brother ventured out to collect firewood, only to be caught in the crossfire. They hurried back inside, and Jenny sought solace in the pages of the Book of Psalms, as the battle raged on outside. After studying scripture, Jenny headed to the kitchen to begin kneading dough so that she could provide the troops with bread. Just then, a bullet crashed through a bedroom window, lodging itself at a bedpost mere inches away from Georgia and her baby boy. Suddenly, and without warning, as Jenny was finishing up her dough, another bullet flew into the home, penetrated two doors, and hit Jenny in the back and through her heart, killing her instantly. Upon seeing what happened, Georgia let out a scream that alerted Union soldiers outside. Running into the home, soldiers quickly escorted the remaining family members out the back, where they would be safe from Confederate gunfire. When the South finally retreated on July 4th, Mary Wade baked 15 loaves of bread from the very dough Jenny had kneaded before her death. The soldiers buried Jenny's body in a temporary grave in the backyard, using a coffin that was meant for Confederate General William Barksdale. In January of 1864, Jenny's body was moved to the German Reformed Church's Cemetery, and then to Evergreen Cemetery in November 1865, where she rests today. Over her grave, a monument was erected in 1900, 
and an American flag flies day and night, an honor shared only with Betsy Ross. It wasn't until nearly two decades after Jenny's death that the United States Senate granted Mary Wade a pension. The Senate recognized that Jenny had been killed while serving the Union, baking bread for soldiers. While it was a bittersweet victory for the Wade family, it was a kind gesture from the Senate, albeit too late. At the onset of the American Civil War in 1861, Jenny was engaged to a Union corporal named Johnson Jack Skelly. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to Jenny, Jack was critically wounded two weeks before her death. Due to the slow travel of news in those times, Jenny was never made aware of Jack's injury. Tragically, just a few days after Jenny's passing, Jack also succumbed to his injuries on July 12th without ever knowing what had happened to his beloved. Legend has it that if you place your finger in the bullet hole of the door where Jenny Wade was shot, you'll be engaged soon after. And that door still exists today in the Jenny Wade Museum, formerly known as the Jenny Wade House, where visitors can take a detailed tour of the 19th century life and learn about Jenny's tragic death during the Battle of Gettysburg. The museum displays the original floors, still stained with the blood of Jenny after she was fatally shot, and eerie photographs that seem to capture her spirit lingering inside the house. But the most intriguing part of the tour is the video evidence that proves the existence of a supernatural entity in the Wade home, and the chilling EVP recordings that provide even more proof of the haunting. Many have reported seeing Jenny wandering around the house or in the surrounding countryside, unable to let go of her beloved home. So many sightings have been reported that the Wade house has been featured on popular TV shows like Ghost Adventures and Ghost Lab. It seems that even in death, Jenny's spirit lives on. The Farnsworth House the Farnsworth House Inn, which now operates as a tourist attraction and inn, was constructed in 1810 on land initially owned by Reverend Alexander Dobbins. The first residence of the home was John F. McFarlane, who owned the land until his death in 1851. After this, the property was owned by the Bank of Gettysburg and then passed on to several other owners before being sold to the Schultz family in 1972. It was the Schultz family who first reported paranormal activity in the residence. Interestingly, before the Schultz family, the Black family owned the home and operated it as the Sleepy Hollow Inn, highlighting the home's history of having 135 bullet holes on one side due to the Battle of Gettysburg. During the battle, the Farnsworth House Inn was occupied by Confederate forces who used it as a hospital and headquarters. This was a common practice during the war, as many homes and buildings in the area were used as centers for treating the wounded and planning attacks. Unfortunately, it was from these makeshift wards that many places acquired their stories of hauntings over the years. The soldiers who were treated in these places often suffered countless deaths and injuries, and they were tended to by civilians who were ill-equipped to handle such traumatic situations. In the midst of the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Farnsworth House Inn became a target for Union troops, who invaded the property, killing numerous Confederate snipers who had taken shelter inside. These snipers were strategically positioned within the inn's towering structure, allowing them to take aim at Union soldiers making their way across the nearby Cemetery Hill. 
It's speculated that the very sniper who took Jenny Wade's life fired his fatal shot from the attic window of the Farnsworth house. According to the Schultz family, the current owners of the Farnsworth House Inn, there are at least 16 spirits that haunt the property, each with its own unique personality and name. Among these spirits are a young boy, multiple soldiers, and a former housewife. Given the number of Confederate Army members who perished in the home, it's no surprise that numerous apparitions of soldiers have been reported. These spirits appear to continue patrolling the house, trapped in a perpetual cycle of duty and seemingly unable to move on from their military obligations. Over the years, there have been many reports of guests at the Farnsworth House Inn hearing heavy breathing and smelling the strong scent of cigars, which is believed to be from the commanding officer who used the home as a temporary headquarters. A particularly eerie experience that guests have reported is feeling as though they're being tucked into bed by a ghostly midwife. Numerous photographs have been taken of a ghostly entity in one of the windows, with many of them coming in from, quote, the Sarah Black Room. This room was named after one of the previous owners of the inn and is considered to be the most haunted room in the house. The Farnsworth House Inn has many reported encounters, but one of the most frequent takes place at night in the quiet attic, where guests have heard a harp playing. This eerie sound is believed to have come from a young soldier who once played it while on duty. Another common occurrence is the sound of footsteps pacing up and down the halls, as if someone is patrolling the area. Employees have also reported feeling followed while working, despite seeing no one around them. Patrons of the inn have seen ghastly silhouettes in various rooms, with some sitting on the edges of their beds. The apparitions are mostly male, but there are also accounts of a female spirit who lived in the house long ago. This female spirit is said to be so realistic that guests have mistaken her for a staff member. It has also been reported that the mattresses invert where the ghost sits, as if a weight is being applied. The dining room is one of the most common places to see some of these apparitions as well. The Farnsworth House Inn is not just home to benevolent spirits, as it is also reportedly haunted by a cranky cook with a penchant for causing trouble. Dressed in clothing from the 19th century, the older woman is said to roam the hallways, tavern, and kitchen of the inn. Witnesses have seen her inspecting products on the shelves, as if deciding what to cook for dinner. However, it seems that the cook is not always in a pleasant mood. She has been known to frequent the restaurant area, where she behaves rudely towards the staff. Some employees have reported being physically pulled by their apron strings from behind, nearly causing them to fall. It appears that the cook takes issue with cooking that is not hers, and may be the only malevolent entity at the Farnsworth House Inn. Despite the eerie happenings at the inn, there is one light-hearted tale that stands out among the rest. A few years ago during Halloween, a local radio station was broadcasting from the inn, and the crew dressed up in blue costumes, with the radio host being referred to as Captain. This seemed to awaken the spirits of the soldiers who were seen running around the inn as if fighting the Battle of Gettysburg all over again. Today, the Farnsworth House Inn is a popular tourist attraction for those interested in the paranormal. With the reported 16 different entities inhabiting the grounds, it's not hard to find a ghostly encounter. 
The inn offers ghost walks and tours for those interested in learning about the rich history that has contributed to its otherworldly activity. The owners are so confident in the frequency of paranormal activity that they claim guests don't even have to seek out the ghosts. The ghosts will find them. Despite the unnerving experiences, the Farnsworth House Inn's fascinating history and ghostly tales continue to attract visitors from all over. The Sacks Covered Bridge The Sacks Covered Bridge in Pennsylvania is another Civil War-era structure that has made it onto the list of haunted attractions. The bridge was used by both Confederate and Union forces during the Battle of Gettysburg and is known to be the site of the execution of at least three Confederate soldiers. This gruesome past is believed to be the reason behind the bridge's otherworldly activity. David S. Stoner built the Sax-Covered Bridge in 1852. The bridge spans 100 feet and crosses the Gettysburg's Marsh Creek, providing a connection between two separate areas of land. For over a century, it served as a passage for both vehicles and pedestrians. However, the bridge's structure weakened over time, and by 1968, it was closed to all automobile traffic. After nearly 30 years, a flood caused the bridge to shake from its foundation, and it required extensive restoration work that cost over half a million dollars. While the bridge is now more structurally sound than ever, it is only open to pedestrians. Despite considerations to reopen it for vehicular use, the preservation of the historical landmark has always been prioritized. During the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863, the town was plunged into chaos due to the viciousness that engulfed the area. As the majority of the Union and Confederate soldiers were young, there were instances where some of them attempted to flee their duties and hide. In one particular incident, three Confederate soldiers attempted to avoid the war by disguising themselves in Union uniforms. However, while marching with the Union near Sax-Covered Bridge, they were soon recognized as Confederates and were immediately made an example of. It is still debated whether they were spies, deserters, or outright traitors, but regardless, the three young men were hung from the bridge's wooden support beams, making sure that any Confederates passing by would see the executed men as a warning. The Sachs-covered bridge has become a notorious location for paranormal investigators and TV shows due to its many ghostly activities. Even with so many other haunted spots in Gettysburg, this bridge has become an iconic location for those seeking to experience mysterious encounters. In the daytime, the bridge looks picturesque with its wooden construction and streaming waters. But as the sun sets, the setting quickly turns eerie. Witnesses have reported seeing the apparitions of three Confederate soldiers floating on the bridge, their disembodied heads barely visible in the moonlight. Visitors have also detected the strong smell of cigar smoke, giving the impression that a soldier from many years ago was still patrolling the area. Some have even felt a tap on their shoulder, only to turn around and find no one there. The sound of distant gunshots is also common on the bridge at night, which could be attributed to hunters in the nearby woods, but the eerie feeling is only heightened when those gunshots are accompanied by the sound of cannon fire. The Gettysburg Hotel 
The city's oldest hotel, the Gettysburg Hotel, was built in 1797 and is located in the center of Lincoln Square, just a few blocks away from the infamous Gettysburg battlefields. According to many historians and eyewitnesses, the Battle of Gettysburg took place all over the city, and not just on the designated battlefield. Due to the high number of casualties and injuries that resulted from the battle, every building that could be occupied became a field hospital or meeting place for the city's elite commanders. Even those without medical experience were expected to tend to the injured, and anyone with a heartbeat was considered medical staff. The Gettysburg Hotel, which spans 9,000 square feet, began its life as a tavern called Scott's Tavern, which was built by James Scott in 1797. The building was later bought by William McLennan, a former sheriff of York County, who renamed it the Indian Queen. After the McLennan brothers became the owners in 1846, the tavern was known locally as the McLennan House. The Gettysburg Hotel has a striking gray brick facade, adorned with small green awnings over the windows, and an American flag flying high on a flagpole. This historic building has borne witness to some of the most pivotal moments in American history, particularly during the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863, which occurred just a few blocks away. It is said that Abraham Lincoln even completed his famous Gettysburg Address across the street at the Wills House. After a revamp in the 1890s, the hotel was renamed the Gettysburg Hotel, a name that has remained for much of the 20th century. The hotel was ahead of its time, boasting modern amenities such as electric lights, hot and cold baths, steam heat, and an excellent restaurant. The hotel played a significant role in American politics when it served as a temporary White House to President Eisenhower in 1955 as he recovered from a heart attack. The president and his wife were the last guests of the hotel in 1964 before it closed its doors. Sadly, the building was ravaged by a fire in 1983 and left abandoned for many years, a reminder of, Gettysburg tur- a reminder of Gettysburg's turbulent past. Fortunately, the hotel was rebuilt in 1991 and now offers guests over 119 rooms with modern amenities while retaining its historic boutique charm. It is also listed as one of the historic hotels of America and is now protected for future generations to enjoy. The historic Hotel Gettysburg stands in the heart of Pennsylvania, surrounded by the famous Gettysburg battlefield and a large graveyard. As we've covered, During the Civil War, it served as a makeshift hospital for the wounded soldiers who were brought in from the battlefield. Doctors and nurses tended to their injuries, and many of them died within the hotel's walls. It is said that the spirits of these soldiers still roam the halls of the hotel, and guests and staff report sightings of ghostly apparitions. One of the most well-known spirits is Rachel, a Civil War nurse who cared for the wounded at the Gettysburg Hotel. Guests have reported seeing her wandering the halls, searching for something or someone. Rachel has even been known to go through guests' belongings, leaving their clothes strewn about the room. Two other ghosts have been reported haunting the hotel, a young woman and a soldier, who have been seen dancing together in the hotel ballrooms. The identities of these apparitions remain a mystery, but their presence adds to the hotel's ghostly atmosphere. So if you're brave enough... A stay at the Gettysburg Hotel might just provide you with a ghostly encounter or two. 
Hey, everybody. Do not worry. Our journey into Gettysburg does not end here. I simply found too many stories to justify having this all in one episode. Uh, This episode would come out to be like almost two and a half hours if I included everything in one. So I'm going to go ahead and close out part one of our episode here. I was not intending to break it up, so forgive at the very end of part two, I say in this singular episode, but it is not, it is two. Um, but the good news is that part two is actually already available for you now. So go ahead and jump on over to part two of Echoes of Gettysburg, and we will pick right up where we left off. So catch you on part two. Keep listening.